You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 57, British Regulars and Provincials. So over the last few weeks, we talked about the blood being spilled at Lexington and Concord, and the beginning of the Siege of Boston. Once the siege had begun, colonists needed their long-dreaded standing army. So I thought now would be a good time to take a closer look at how the British and provincial armies compared. In 1775, the British military was the envy of the world. The navy probably got more respect than the army. By European standards, the army alone was not particularly outstanding, certainly nowhere near close to the largest but a tradition of combat experience had made the army a well-organized and effective fighting force to assert British policy. The regular army of 1775 had its roots in the English Civil War a century earlier. Like today, the army was divided into officers and enlisted men, and the divide between the two groups was even greater than it is today. Officers, for the most part, came from the aristocracy. Some officers served in Parliament, Many more had brothers, fathers, or cousins in important government positions. Most officers obtained their rank by buying them. Now, to a modern audience, buying a military rank might sound like a form of corruption. But there were valid policy reasons for the practice. It ensured that officers were men of wealth and property, not the sort who might someday be inclined to, say, start a revolution against the aristocracy. It also served as a bond on the soldiers to do their duty. If an officer behaved badly, he could be discharged from the army. He would lose his commission entirely without the chance to sell it. Selling a commission at the end of a career could also provide a retirement bonus for the retiree. This is where we get the term selling out, although that phrase has taken on a much more negative connotation today. The cost of a commission depended on rank and varied widely. But even for the lowest commissions, the cost would be more than an average working man could earn in a decade. To avoid having an officer corps filled with incompetent but wealthy dilettantes, several reforms during the 1700s tried to put some restrictions on the sales of commissions, including setting maximum prices for such sales based on the rank. In the 1770s, an officer would typically offer the commission to the next most senior officer of a lower rank in his regiment. If that officer could not afford to purchase it, the officer would sell to the next senior officer, and so on. Even with the reforms, money and connections often allowed some officers to push past their peers for faster promotion, without any regard to merit. Some aristocrats even purchased commissions for their young children so that they would have seniority by the time they were actually ready to serve in active duty. Not all officers were wealthy. 
Many who entered service did so because they were the younger brothers in an aristocratic family, meaning they would inherit nothing. While a family might support that younger brother's career, his children and his children's children might also decide to enter service. As distance grew between the military line and the family line that inherited all the wealth, family support became less likely. An officer's salary would not allow him to save enough to buy a promotion. Many officers stagnated in junior positions of ensign or lieutenant for decades, mostly because they could not afford to buy a position in the next grade. During wartime, when officer deaths might open up a great many positions, promotion would sometimes be possible without cost. Many officers engaged in conspicuous acts of daring during battle in hopes that they might get a battlefield promotion, saving them a fortune. Top officers, full colonels and generals, did not have to purchase their commissions. These top ranks were received directly from the king and approved by the ministry. At the other end of the social ladder, enlisted men were considered the lowest of the low. Almost all of them came from the peasant class of unskilled laborers. A large number of them came from particularly oppressed regions, including Ireland and Scotland. Typically, enlistments were limited to Protestants, although within a few years wartime demands allowed the enlistments of some Catholics. Large numbers of soldiers entered the ranks after being found guilty of a crime. Enlistment in the army often avoided a death sentence. Unscrupulous military recruiters enlisted many other soldiers. They would get young, naive, often drunk men to agree to an enlistment in exchange for a small amount of money. Sometimes recruiters would use fraud in getting a potential recruit to, quote, take the king's shilling, end quote. That is, a down payment on the signing bonus for enlistment. One commonly mentioned technique would be to buy the potential recruit a beer and put a shilling secretly in the bottom of the mug. If the recruit drank the beer and the shilling touched his lips, that was considered to be an acceptance of enlistment. In some cases, the army did not even bother with fraudulent recruitment. It simply impressed soldiers. That is, essentially kidnapping them. Press gangs would grab young men and force them into the army. Impressment was more common in the navy than the army, but both services used it at times. Once enlisted, a soldier would typically serve for life, although some enlistments were limited to terms of a mere 21 years. Occasionally, soldiers who had become too old, infirm, or injured to serve in active duty would be granted dismissal with a pension, but these were a small minority. Most military enlistments ended in death or desertion. During wartime, the army would sometimes recruit for shorter terms. For example, once London determined that it needed thousands of soldiers to put down the rebellion in America, it recruited for three-year enlistments. In today's modern army, officers typically have a healthy respect for the enlisted men serving under them. In 18th century Britain, this was most certainly not the case. With few exceptions, officers treated their soldiers with contempt, or at best, condescension. However recruited, enlisted men lived much like slaves. Soldiers would do their duty and follow orders because they knew officers would punish them if they behaved otherwise. Punishments were frequent and brutal, even for minor infractions. A common punishment was a public lashing, which could range from dozens of lashes to thousands, 
depending on the severity of the crime and the depravity of the officer making the decision. Compare this with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which limited lashes to a maximum of 39. Colonists were horrified at the cruelty of military punishments. Officers also used painful or humiliating punishments. It was not uncommon for a soldier to die from a punishment that was not necessarily meant to be fatal. The Army also handed out the death penalty frequently and for relatively benign offenses, including petty theft. Any attempt to desert, especially in time of war, typically called for the death penalty. While commanders could show clemency and set aside the death penalty, executions were common. Now, pay for both officers and enlisted men was inadequate. Many officers came from independent wealth and could afford to finance their lifestyles independently of military pay. Some officers enhanced their pay by ripping off their own soldiers. An infantry private earned eight pence a day, though soldiers never saw that much. Regimental officers would deduct money for food, uniforms, and other necessities. Regimental paymasters would deduct money for their services in paying the troops. After deductions, which varied by regiment, a private could expect to receive about 18 to 20 pence per week. That is roughly $15 a week in today's inflation-adjusted money. In some cases, depending on officers and the duties they required, enlisted men could supplement their pay by taking jobs in the local community. Some also supplemented their meager food rations by growing their own vegetables or by fishing. Any supplemental work, of course, took a backbench to their primary duties. Soldiers typically spent about three hours a day grooming themselves, polishing their buttons and weapons, powdering their wigs, and taking care of their uniforms. Failure to do so could subject them to punishment. Drill, guard duty, fatigue duty, and numerous other requirements filled out their days. Leaving enlisted men to their own devices only left them time to get drunk or into fights. Officers required their men to look good, and this was of prime importance. Smelling good, however, does not seem to have been a requirement. Soldiers rarely bathed and wore the same clothes every day. Despite having their pay docked for a clothing allowance, uniforms often had to last as long as two years before they would get a replacement. Enlisted soldiers did get married, and wives received a food allowance, but little else from the army. Many women earned extra money washing clothes, cooking food, or other domestic chores for officers or civilians. Children received a food allotment as well. However, a child's allotment only lasted until age 14. At that time, a boy had the option of enlisting himself and joining the regiment as a soldier, or he would have to leave camp. Similarly, a girl would be expected to get married to someone in the regiment at age 14, or she too would have to leave camp. When a regiment shipped to a new location, the army would not always pay for the transport of wives and children. For most enlisted men, this meant they would have to leave their families behind. Some records show that a regiment would sometimes transport a few wives, but not all, leaving it to the officers to decide which men got to bring their wives and which would be separated. If a soldier died in battle, his widow and children were often left to fend for themselves. The government would not even pay for their travel home from enemy territory. Despite the terrible treatment, regulars often did take pride in their regiments. 
Many regimental leaders went to great lengths to remind the men of the heroic acts of those who had served in the regiment before them in prior wars. Regiments carried these badges of honor and encouraged current soldiers to live up to that reputation. Many enlisted men also worked hard to earn promotion to corporal or sergeant, which provided them with a little more money and prestige. Non-commissioned officers were responsible for the behavior of their men, and if a private got into trouble, his NCO could be demoted back to private as well. Enlisted men did not always feel a strong patriotic loyalty to the Army or Britain in general. Desertions were common, and not just for fear of battle. Many soldiers simply wanted a better life after experiencing the rigors of the regular army. Prisoners captured in battle often frequently gave up intelligence to the enemy, sometimes even agreeing to fight for the enemy in hopes of securing better treatment for themselves. What separated a professional army from others was its courage in battle. It is not natural for men to stand in line, shoulder to shoulder, and calmly walk forward as people shoot at them. But that was the only way to bring concentrated fire against an enemy and win the field. If a soldier fell, no one would stop to help him. Soldiers would simply close ranks and continue on. Following orders and calmly doing one's duty under fire was possible only from months or years of drill followed by battlefield experience. Success in battle also required fire control. When someone is shooting at you, the natural instinct is to shoot back. Inexperienced soldiers would often want to fire from hundreds of yards away. The inaccuracy of muskets at that time made hitting even a line of men at that distance quite improbable. Reloading could waste 20 to 30 seconds. Also, stopping to fire during an advance could break up the line and lead to chaos. Experienced soldiers knew to maintain lines at all costs. They would march to just within firing range, maybe 50 yards, wait for an enemy to fire, then charge the line so they could attack hand-to-hand before the enemy could reload. Field officers had to lead by example. They ignored enemy fire and calmly ordered soldiers to advance across the battlefield. Showing any reaction to enemy bullets flying around one was considered an act of cowardice that would quickly turn a line of soldiers into a fleeing rabble. Officers and men standing in line apparently unconcerned by incoming fire and returning fire at a rapid rate of three rounds per man per minute, would hopefully convince the other side to retreat, thus granting a battlefield victory. Modern armies attempt to adhere to the motto of no man left behind. Modern soldiers even go to great efforts to remove the bodies of their dead before leaving a field of battle. There was no such concept in the armies of the 1770s. Soldiers frequently left dead and wounded behind. There was more of an effort to rescue wounded officers, but the thinking in an 18th century army was that soldiers were expendable. Compassion for a comrade in battle was a weakness that would quickly weaken the line as a fighting force. After a battle, soldiers would make some effort to help the wounded when possible, but this was not the primary concern that it is in most modern armies. The British Army of the time also had no professional medical corps to tend to the wounded, nor did it have any organized religious corps for the men. After a battle, commanding officers would try to do their best for the dead and wounded, but too often the dead and wounded simply were not a priority. 
Now, the Provincial Army of New England had evolved from the British militia system that had existed since the first British colonists landed in North America. In the colonies, almost all free men between the ages of 16 and 50 served in local militias. Royal governors granted commissions to officers. Everyone in the militia had to supply their own arms and ammunition and usually show up for drill four times each year. In times of war or imminent war, militia might drill more frequently. Militia would sometimes fight their own local battles, often against Indians. Other times they would supplement and fight alongside regulars when fighting came to their colony. Sometimes militia would travel with regulars to neighboring colonies, but this was not the norm. Militia typically remained close to home, fighting when needed, and quickly returning to civilian life when hostilities ceased or when fighting moved to another theater. Militia were also used to capture runaway slaves or, when needed in rare instances, put down a slave rebellion. At a time when professional police did not exist, the militia might provide law enforcement functions when needed, capturing suspected criminals or restoring order when it became too much for the sheriff. When the colonies began to break with Britain, they could not rely on royal governors to appoint officers. In the Republican spirit of the times, enlisted men voted for their officers and NCOs. If an officer failed to meet their men's expectations, they could dismiss him and elect someone else. As a result, Patriot officers were on much friendlier terms with the enlisted men. The men lived and worked together. An officer might be in command of his brother, son, or cousins, and this made the chain of command far less certain. An officer could punish a soldier for doing something that everyone thought was wrong, such as stealing or shirking duty. But if the consensus was that an officer was too overbearing or had exacted too harsh a punishment, he could find himself out of a job. A great many officers did not get overly concerned about presentation. Most officers wore civilian clothing and did not seem terribly concerned about keeping their camps, clothes, or even themselves very clean. As there were almost no women present at the Siege of Boston, the men had no one to clean and sew for them. As a result, they wore clothes for weeks or months until the filthy rags literally fell off them. Some officers did require their men to maintain themselves with good appearance, but these seemed to be more the exception than the rule. General officers received appointments from the Provincial Congress. By the summer of 1775, all the colonies had provincial congresses operating in opposition to royal authority, and each colonial congress had its own army. The Massachusetts Provincial Congress called for a New England army of 30,000 to besiege Boston after Lexington and Concord, with just under half of those coming from Massachusetts. Three other armies from New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island had joined the siege of Boston. There was, however, no way to force officers and men from one colony to obey orders from a leader in another. Officers had to convince units that their orders made sense and were reasonable. As you might guess, the result was often chaos. Top officers would meet in conference and try to coordinate strategy, but there was no top-down command structure nor any real enforcement of discipline. Units could come and go at will. Many soldiers, after a few days or weeks, wanted to return home for planning season or maybe just to get their clothes cleaned. Entire companies might decide they had better things to do and simply leave. The leaders eventually convinced a corps of units to commit to remaining on duty until the end of the year, 
That helped a little, but many continued to come and go despite their agreement. That enlisted men thought they had a say in things proved greatly frustrating for many officers. But it also meant they had committed soldiers who were there to fight for reasons beyond mere obedience to a superior. They would often fight aggressively or take their own initiative without orders. This meant that soldiers or junior officers could second-guess orders that made little sense given what was in front of them at the moment. Sometimes this led to chaos, but given the inexperience of many general officers, this disobedience often benefited the cause. Most units came from the same town. Since they elected their officers, they already had a long-standing shared respect for their leaders. Good behavior came about from the fact that your fellow soldiers were your friends, neighbors, and even relatives. A soldier would not want to develop a reputation as a coward or shirker among his peers. These informal relationships helped keep the provincial soldiers in line. A most New England militia had participated in at least weekly drills for the prior year, anticipating the need for a fight. As a result, the militia in 1775 were much better trained than most traditional militia, though still not as well trained as the regulars. While a more professional Continental Army would develop over time, in the spring of 1775, the small, highly professional British Army in Boston faced a much larger group of amateurs surrounding them. Some Patriot officers had experience fighting in combat during the French and Indian War. Many, though, had no practical experience in combat. They had drilled militia, some had read a few books on military strategy, but very few had much, if any, practical experience. What held everyone together was a shared view that they needed to stand up to British tyranny. Unlike British enlisted regulars, Patriot soldiers voluntarily put themselves under the command of officers in order to further the cause of protecting their freedom. They each had a personal motivation to further the cause. Next week, I will take a look at slavery during this time when men were fighting for the basic right of liberty. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to the American Revolution Podcast book review. Now, before I get to today's review, I want to mention my new American Revolution Podcast website. Up until now, I've been relying on my blog site, and my podcast host site to provide my online content. The podcast is also available on about a kajillion third-party sites, and I still have all those things. But now, in addition, I have a website reachable at 
www.amrevpodcast.com. At the moment, if you type in that address, it still forwards you to a Google Sites address, and I'm still looking for a permanent home for this. The site itself includes a link to the book recommendation of the week, as well as a list of all episodes. The episode list also has links to the blog article or podcast recording of that episode. At the bottom of the list is my contact info, email, Twitter, Facebook, etc., as well as connections to the podcast on Apple, Google, and other locations. I expect to add more to this later, including a complete list of all books that I've used for the podcast across all episodes, and perhaps eventually short biographies of important characters mentioned in the podcast. If you have any ideas or suggestions about what else I might add, feel free to contact me. Okay, well since today's episode was all about the British and provincial armies, today's book is Armies of the American Revolution by Ian Hogg and John Matchler. Again, this week, not a very long book at only about 160 pages. And it came out quite a while ago, first published in 1975. We see a great many Revolutionary War books from around this time, as everyone wanted to cash in on the Bicentennial. What is nice about this book, and particularly relevant to today's episode, is its focus on the armies. It contains lots of illustrations for uniforms, weapons, and other items, as well as descriptions of soldier life. It's not a terribly detailed book, and certainly not academic. It's meant for people with a general interest on what it would be like to be a soldier during the Revolution. And one really nice thing about the book is that you can get a used hardcover copy on Amazon for about $5, including shipping. So adding this one to your library won't set you back very much. Ian Hogg, the author, is, or I guess I should say was since he passed away, a British arms expert who has written many books about weapons used in many different wars. John Batchelor is the illustrator. He also specialized in books on weapons and the military. And he also designed a great many stamps for postal services around the world. Anyway, if you want to check it out, I've added a link to the top of my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. And remember, if you buy through my link, it costs the same amount to you, but Amazon will kick a few cents back to support this podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. That's it for today. Please come back for more American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.